Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. Today is a special episode and a treat for me. Uh, I get to talk to someone that I met at a conference at the start of this year, uh, Jim McClinsky. Uh, I was immediately intrigued by our conversation there and wanted to have him on the podcast as a result to share Joe with my Trial Lawyer Review audience. This special episode is about engagement with work teams. So my questions will be targeted around that topic for Joe to help law firms. Uh, let me give him a brief introduction. He's the founder and CEO of Shift, a New York Times bestselling author, TEDx speaker, who wants to change how we work to transform the way we live. At Shift, uh, a tech-enabled management consulting firm nationally recognized as a best workplace, Joe helps leaders build healthy and high-performing organizations by disrupting outdated norms, building engaged teams, and using technology to unlock human potential. Passionate about equity in the workplace, Joe is a partner at Conscious Venture Partners, excuse me, a group that invests in minority founded business. Joe, welcome to this special episode of Trial or Review, focusing on team engagement. Awesome, Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So... For law firms, how do they bring out the best in their people to have the highest performing organization? Is there a specific model you recommend? Hybrid, traditional, in-office work? It, you know, it seems like post-COVID, everything's changed so much. One of the things that would be good just to start with is to recognize that we spend the majority of our waking time at work. And this notion that we've had for so long, which is, you know, um, leave your stuff at the door, right? If things aren't necessarily working for you at home, that's fine. But when you're at work, I need you to turn it on. And you mentioned, uh, you know, I have a TEDx talk and I spent a lot of time talking about legacy thinking. So I cannot imagine an industry, whether it's accounting or the law field, that has a lot of rooted legacy thinking on how professional service companies do their thing. Everything from kind of the partner and ascension model to, you know, how we bring people into the organization to what the career path looks like. And I think what I would just maybe invite people to think about right now is that there is no one size fits all. So that's the bad or good news, depending on the way that you like to, you know, absorb information and advice. And as lots of companies right now are toggling between being in person or being fully remote or somewhere in between, which seems to be the topic of the day, and it has been for the last few years, what I would say is there's definitely value in gathering. There is no mistake about it. We as human beings, we're social creatures going back to millions of years of evolution of how we gather in a group, in a tribe, how we read the room or we read each other's nonverbal communication. All of these things are sort of innate in the wiring and depending on your training or your teaching, you know, how you've built your emotional intelligence certainly helps you understand how you have self-awareness and social awareness and manage relationships. But on the other side, I think what the pandemic showed us, particularly if people can go all the way back in the Wayback Machine, March 16th of 2020, was sort of the day for me after doing this work for two decades where the table got flipped. People allowed their people to work, particularly office workers in general, to work from home. And as someone who's been talking about giving your people freedom within a framework for quite some time, it was amazing to me the change curve on that one because it was about a day. 
And I think for a lot of us, what it unlocked or maybe unblocked was just that there's a lot of different ways to slice the cat. So for some organizations, they have a younger uh, 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 contingent of people in the business um, world. Maybe they just got there from a 10-year standpoint. The research would say they need to be around people. They need to be in an office to be mentored. That is probably the best for them at some particular case. But there's a lot of folks, and I, I will tell you, there's a lot of um, attorneys that I know that have been working from home for decades. And if you ask them point blank, does everybody else know what they're doing in terms of working from home? Like, do they have good work practices, good work rituals, good work routines? What you'll tend to find is we thought it was just as easy as bringing our laptop or our briefcase home and still running the play. And that's not how it works. So we'll get into a little bit more of this. But what I would urge people to just think about in terms of like, you know, fully in office, hybrid, or fully distributed, you know, each one of these has an upside and a downside. And every organization, I would really strongly encourage you stop looking at everyone else. Don't compare yourself to other companies and just say, look, what's the goal that we're trying to achieve? If we need a younger group of people to come into the work and you're in a remote location, well, then you're probably going to have to think about what the market looks like. No different than you would from a business development standpoint. So I think to wrap it up, I would treat your employees like your customers and think to yourself, if I were in marketing and I was trying to bring in the very best talent, what is the, the sort of the, the hook to get people into the organization? And then once they're here, what's the soil, the, the, the enrichment they need to continue to thrive? And I, I would also maybe one last piece, Jason, I'll shut up after this, is think to yourself, everything that you're trying in terms of protocols, processes and practices in terms of this idea of hybrid remote or otherwise, maybe you think about it as a scientist, which is think of what would be good for now and then run the play and then go, okay, you know what? We got to try something different because this adjustment isn't giving us what we need. Yeah, interestingly, we just finally went to a full hybrid model. We had certain parts of our team that were just always... Uh, work from home and we had certain roles that we thought really needed to be in office all the time but we did our um, EMPS and we got some feedback from one of the teams that really they felt like well why is the rest of the organization able to do this and really when we looked at it there wasn't any reason not to they, they tend to be a little more junior as entry-level people but they can handle it as long as they've been in office for some period of time and get an understanding of how everything works, right? So I think it is a bit of trial and error to get to, you know, ultimately the right place for your team. I think another related question to that would be how do, and maybe it's the same answer, but how do you manage teams in terms of autonomy? You know, unlimited PTO is one extreme. How does a law firm find the right balance for them to make sure that time sensitive work gets done, but yet people have flexibility because that seems like today is, is truly desired by the folks that are out in the workforce. So there's a lot in this. Um, and I think, you know, just for context, I have worked in about 600 plus organizations over the last 20 years and none of them look the same. And we have done it across industries. And I think part of what that might be good in this particular moment when the table has been flipped 
which is what are all the other ways, not just within the law field in particular, that really allow you to bring in the best, you know, create the best and build the best team that you possibly can. And I would say on this piece, let's remember that most organizations are shaped like a pyramid, which means there's sort of this embedded adult at the top and children below, which means, you know, and I get it. They're juniors. They need to be mentored. They work for me. All of these, this language that we use. And I think within professional service organizations, what I would maybe just, again, invite them in to think about this a little differently, which is when you treat someone like a child, what happens? They act like a child. So when you, you know, micromanage, tell them when to show up, why to show up, how to show up. You know, when I work with a lot of CEOs and founders, I find that they get really frustrated with their people. They get really, it's not where, it's not what feeds them. It's not their highlight of the day. Now they love mentoring. They love teaching. They love training, but not the day to day. Did someone do their job? And I think in large respect, if you treat people like adults, what you'd be very surprised to find is they show up like adults. And so it doesn't work all the time. But I think you said something that was really critical too earlier, which was we've got to be careful that we're not focused on the C student. So when you think about all of the rules that exist in the world, most of the time it was this old line when I was growing up, like we can't have nice things. See, we, we break things all the time. And so in this case, I would say, maybe make the design point, what do your A's and your B pluses need from you? And make that the focus of how we think about the organization. And I'm not suggesting you just deal with the C's, put your head in the sand and, and deny. But, but I think in this moment, you get a chance to sort of refresh the way that you build the organization. And I think I would go the opposite, which is our natural reflex. My kids are coming home from school, 12 and 10. And I've had many conversations with both teachers. They're both wonderful people. But inevitably, the rules in the classroom are because of the C students. They're not because of the A's. And we study a lot of high-performing environments. And I will tell you, the highest performers are mostly successful in spite of all the wonderful things that organizations either put up as a barrier and blocker or an accelerator to high performance. So I'm not meaning to be meta or vague or hard to pin down in these questions, but I think part of the, 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 the switch if you will, is to start thinking of these conversations as adult to adult conversations. So again, if you were an adult, Jason, like how would you want to unlock your own, let's say discretionary effort? You know, one last little talk track on this, which is how often have I done a survey for a company and it comes back and the data says people aren't taking ownership, responsibility, accountability. And in a lot of measures, it's because they don't feel like it's theirs. It wasn't their choice. It wasn't their voice. It wasn't their vote. Well, guess what? It's almost like we have a babysitter coming tonight. We've got date night, my lady and I. And all of a sudden, you know, we know this woman very well. And she's been like our adopted daughter through COVID, you know. But now, like if we were having another person come in who comes from like a, a wonderful service, one's going to babysit them and one's going to be with them. And I think, you know, that level of ownership is something that you can absolutely create in an organization. But from an executive perspective, it requires, it requires that adult to adult conversation. It requires getting clear what you said, like what is the best case scenario for this week? Everybody should put it up on the board. We should talk about it at the beginning of the week. Like what are the most important things? I'm and then we should talk about it at the end of the week or talk about it the next week. Like I'm not suggesting without accountability. Adults, generally speaking, like to be held accountable. 
when they're again in an environment to act and be them their best selves as opposed to subjugate it relegate it to something less than they are and so you know i, I spent a lot of time thinking about this as you can tell and i can give you some biology reasons that all of this is sort of happening too but i think at a just a very quick level because i know we've got a lot to hit to today um, that's how i would think about it. it what's interesting about it and we've gone to an unlimited pto model and when I thought about it, I thought about exactly what you outlined. Well, how would, how would I want it, right? right? I go about my day and I do my work regardless of everything else because I feel that responsibility as an owner, founder, CEO in my role. But I think most people, that's what they want. Then, you know, when we switched to this, which was a while ago, you know, I, I really wasn't worried that someone isn't going to do their work. And if they don't, we're going to see it immediately. You know, hey, if you took a month off and didn't hit your goal, well, that's a problem. Then we have a performance related issue. You've got to give people their their own ability to manage what's going on in their career, I think. Uh, so I, I 100% agree. Now, it may not work for everybody. It's It's worked right. well for our organization. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the importance of team members feeling that they're seen, heard, and understood. Ideally, you want your team to feel that the organization has their back at, at every moment, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I, I think for just a little context, it was about 50 or 60 years ago that the positive psychology movement was birthed by a gentleman by the name of Martin Seligman. And then it was followed up by a guy named Danny Goleman in the mid nineties who wrote the first book around emotional intelligence. So why do I say this? Well, because up to that point, when we thought about psychology or why people do what they do, we were always focused on the problems or the, the afflictions or the sort of the disease, if you will, around what was preventing people um, from flourishing. And so we've just in the last 25 years, learn what it takes for a human being um, to really flourish. I mean, mental health is a conversation that we're having now because of the pandemic and giving us all, again, if you go back 100 years, we had just learned what physical standards were, like the idea of exercising or working out or running. They didn't exist before 100 years ago. So if you just put that in perspective and then you jump into the conversation that you're having about psychological safety, Google published a study in 2016 called Project Aristotle in the New York Times. And more or less, they said exactly what you just did, which is they studied thousands of team, thousands of members, hundreds of teams of developers to see what was the difference that made the difference. What was the thing that sort of made the cream rise to the top? And what they came back as, as they said, people need to feel valued, seen, heard, understood, appreciated, acknowledged. They need to feel like they have a vote, a voice. These sound like normal human like dynamics and virtues. And the other piece that you hit on, which is dead on, they need to feel like they're in a group, a team, a tribe, a crew. They need to feel like the organization has their back. Now, I grew up in a really hard environment where like loyalty and having your back really meant something. And it's kind of like one of the dynamics of how I would say I was able to get out. But I think from an organizational perspective, you know, I'm not suggesting blind faith or um, loyalty regardless. However, 
if we take a longer view perspective on the relationships that we have at work, if we think to ourselves, not the golden rule, how do I want to be treated, but to actually ask people how they want to be treated, they call it the platinum rule, that I think is the opportunity and unlock because you know, we all know this, a sports team, just to use that frame, you know, a sports team where they trust each other, where they feel like there's a bond, they feel like there's a real strong binding, you know, this golden thread that exists between all of them. Well, how do you do that? Well, you strip them down, you know, you get people vulnerable, you get them raw, you get people opening up. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a stat that has been used in my space for 20 some years from Gallup saying 70% of the American workforce is not engaged. This is derived from a 12 question survey called the Q12 and over 25 years, it hasn't changed much. And I put out a thesis back in 2018 with this idea of like, it's because we're not bringing all of ourselves to work. Like there are only compartments and neat things that I'm allowed to talk about. And I'm not suggesting we should all lay down on therapy couches here at work, but every organization is a decision making machine. You are employing people to do things and to think about things. That's it. That's how it works. And so if that's true, then we should start thinking about not like foosball tables per se, or not just like kombucha bars or, you know, again, unlimited paid off. We did that too. We found by the way, with high performers, they actually don't take enough time off. Um, you know, so you're kind of damn if you do damn if you don't. But I think part of what, again, the, the suggestion to think about is, you know, do you know what is most important to your people? And if not, ask them the questions, survey them, you know, pulse them, find a way to make them feel seen, heard, understood. And that psychologically safe thing gets, I know a lot of weird rap because of safe spaces and how that's viewed publicly or politically. And I would just say, throw it away. The millennials make up 70% of the American workforce right now. So again, if you were thinking like a marketer, as a leader of your professional service or, or law firm, you gotta know where the market, like Wayne Gretzky says, where's the puck going? And whether we have a point of view about how it was done to us, how previous generations used to walk in the snow with no shoes on to get to school, like all these wonderful stories of grit and resilience. It's a new day, it's a new world. And so it's time to like, sort of like open up our eyes to something different and just meet the moment where it is. And the best way to do that is ask a question and then do what I'm not doing, which is shut up and listen deeply. It's not that complicated. If you listen deeply, you know what's the greatest thing about all the questions that you're asking? If you ask your team these questions, not you specifically, Jason, but when you ask your team these questions, you might be surprised what you get back. I mean, you're gonna, you know, again, when we think about cognitive biases, these are patterns of how your brain makes sense of the world. For those who have not read a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by a, name, by a guy by the name of Danny Kahneman, and his partner was Amos Tversky. They won the Nobel Prize back in 2002 for a thesis around irrational economic behavior. That basically all the economic theory that we had talked about, which was I'm an individual and I will optimize my position, period. Very logically. The problem is none of us are Spock. We have all this emotion and, and we sort of make decisions like ChatGPT makes decisions right now based on an algorithm of the past, not on an idea moving forward. So as we're thinking about traveling through this, I just would encourage people when you hear things from your team, there's sort of three buckets that you're going to hear and listen for. One is things that you already knew. Great. 
you got your finger on the pulse of what's going on. Congratulations, pat yourself on the back. You're gonna hear things that you knew, but you didn't really know. Like you kind of like, ah, you know, I'm not really sure if they feel good about our Fridays off or our unlimited PTO. But that curiosity, you know, again, I think most people get down with. But the third bucket is where I really have, you know, both, if I'm being honest, a little fun with executive teams. And I'll also a lot of compassion, which is the third bucket is what don't you know that you don't know? And being willing to listen from that point of view does not mean we're going to unionize your professional service company and your law firm. But what it means is you have the fortitude, you have the, the, the calm, the strength to just receive the information. I think there was a great quote from Aristotle that said something about a, a really wise man can hear something, a new idea, without having to adopt it or implement it. And that's the trick. Just kind of take it in. Sift, sort, make a decision. And if people feel, not that they got their way, but they just feel like you took it in earnestly, honestly, and authentically, and then made a decision, generally speaking, most people go, okay, my, I didn't get my thing this time, but maybe next time. We'll see. That's how I would think about it. So you mentioned millennials. And in terms of just all the generations that are in the workforce today, what do you think is important to retain a law firm's team members? And, and maybe it's not forever, but keeping those that a law firm wants as part of their team, what, what is the key? So I think there's a few things that I would start off with, which is in the management consulting space, I, um, I know based on just some you know, statistical averages that the average time a consultant spends at a big management consulting firm is 2.7 years. Okay. So the first is like a marketer, go figure out what your lifetime value of an employee not a forever employee, not the folks that have been with you and will stay with you no matter what. I think the first thing to think about with millennials is you've got to go in with the mindset that the average millennial will have 11 jobs by the time they're 40. So we can judge it, we can condemn it, or we can just say, okay, well, based on that, how do I want to run my play at my law firm to either meet the market where it is and at least hit the average more often than not, or I want to double the average. And then the question would be, back to your point, Jason, is like, well, what's the algebra to double the average? Because if you don't have to hire, let's say, um, another person, right? After 2.7 years, they make it another 2.7 years. You've essentially, you've gained a few things that I think are important to call out. A recruiting fee, lost downtime, opportunity costs, which kind of connects to that second one, Time to proficiency, meaning when you hire someone, it takes about six to nine months, generally speaking, to get them up to speed. And then the last one, which I think we all sort of experienced in some way, shape, or form during the pandemic, which is the burnout factor of the people that stay and do basically the work of the people that leave. All of these things are interesting. So if you added up all of that, what, again, smarter people than me have done some math on this, somewhere around... Again, round figures, two and a half times the person's annual salary and compensation combined. So if you have a, let's say a, a junior associate making $100,000 a year, you're talking about $250,000 a year if that person stays another 2.7 years. So then the question is how do you redeploy as a capital and resource allocator, as a founder, as the, the managing director of that law firm? Well, what do you do with it? 
So do you try to keep it for some other project or can you redeploy that resource in a stipend for continuing education, um, greater maybe um, acceleration into the partner pool? Maybe there's another way to think about, again, giving people more resources so that they work less. I think the one thing that your industry is known for is burning people out. And I, you know, I hope this isn't said in a, anything but, you know, some level of respect coming from a person not in the law firm, but <clears throat> I think it's time to update the software on this, which is not everyone's going to want to do it the way that you and I did it, the, the way we paid our dues, the way we stayed late, we worked through the weekends, we got up earlier than anyone else. And for a second, <laughs> I think the question that I love asking parents when they say, man, my kids have it a lot easier than me, these kids are like soft, and I'm like, wasn't that the point? Wasn't the point to do it better, make it a little easier? Now, before we go saying they're not tough with grit or resilience, I would just say like they're going to have their own challenges. Life is going to be hard. Let's be honest. It's not going to necessarily magically get easier. It's going to be hard in different ways. So I think from a how do you keep your, your folks, you know, money tends to be number five, six, or seven as the reason people leave. The first tends to be the relationship they have with their direct manager or supervisor. The second tends to be something around career growth and does this organization align with my values moving forward. The third tends to be freedom, flexibility within that framework of how I can live my life and work really, really hard for you. And then you get into benefits, then you get into training, then you get into money. And I'm not suggesting that's the same rubric for everyone, but most of the data that comes back would support a bit of that general hierarchy. So a um, uh, couple last questions here. Can you talk about shift and perhaps talk about latch as well and how that can help a law firm create the most engaged, high-performing team? Being very kind with your questions, Jason. Um, so a couple of things. So I started this company when I was 23 years old, uh, Shift as a management consulting firm. I was really struck by the idea and the tragic truth that we spend the majority of our time at work and how often people look forward to the weekends or have the Sunday scaries or just are working until they get to this magical retirement age when they can do what they wanna do. Like the whole idea of what do you have to do versus what do you get to do versus what do you wanna do? And what you'll find with high performers, I mean, top of the top of their class, whether it's coming out of you know, law school, university, you know, sports teams, high performing organizations, is that they are in choice. They are in choice. No one has to tell them what time to wake up. Nobody has to tell them what they're going to do. So for me, I was like, well, how do we do that? I didn't want to go work for a big consulting firm. I was like, I want to do that here at my place. And so that's basically more or less what I've been doing for the last 20 years is how do you help an organization deal with two fundamental, just consistent forces, which is change and uncertainty. And, you know, for me, I have a lot of personal story that people can click into, into the books that I've written or other podcast interviews about some of my um, suffering and trauma growing up in Baltimore City. But that was the gist of it, is how do you help an organization think through almost like a personal development exercise of dealing with my relationship with change, my relationship with uncertainty? Because when they say, there's another 70%, by the way, I'm not just like claiming these stats, John Cotter, one of the greatest authors on change management. I love his stuff. 
you know, he wrote this 20 years ago. He said 70% of change fails inside of organizations. Like how many times have we all been part of something that was like the soup of the day? Or we tried something and it didn't work because we couldn't get it through the system to become adopted. Well, that is the trench in which we have lived for 20 years, which is how do we help partner with the executives to help think about where do they wanna go, what's most important along the way, and what are the barriers, blockers, and accelerators to help the organization get there. And so for 20 years, we've been doing it as a small little McKinsey, um, if you will. We've had a, a, just an amazing team. You mentioned we've been best place at the work. I've taken this work to heart in as so much as not being the one who just talks about it or being like the pundit from the stands, but it's like we've been a laboratory. So we have innovated on so many things. We did unlimited vacation back in 2005. We, we've been remote since the jump for the most part. We've had an office, um, you know, but we've put our team through breath work and yoga. We've, we've, um, we just rolled out ketamine therapy in home to our team just to, again, try to be supportive and innovative and disruptive to what's going on in the workplace. Now, the softball that you have tossed me up again so kindly um, as a new friend is we have also recently built a platform to deal with this moment. So you started this whole conversation with hybrid work. And one of the things I said is we have two million years of evolution of seeing each other in person and being able, all of us, to just like give each other a look and know when to shut up and when to say something. The problem is that look does not translate through Zoom and it definitely doesn't translate through Slack, email, Teams, WhatsApp, whatever instant messaging app you're using. And a fun fact for those who are on Zoom meetings all day long, wondering what the heck you did before this pandemic started. Microsoft came out with an amazing study, millions, millions, I think it was 3 million workers took this uh, survey, plus they've got the data sitting in office. They found that 252% more meetings have been scheduled since the pandemic began. And then we sponsored a big global burnout study. It was in 30 countries, thousands of people took this. We were trying to figure out like, why is everybody burned out? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, there are meetings all day, back to back to back to back, and it's not helpful. It's not bringing out our best, number one. Number two, um, there's blurred lines. So people are texting and emailing all day. These things are attached to our hip. They're, we don't have good work boundaries yet. And the last is the connection. You and I met at Costa Rica. Had we not met in person, you're like, who is this Yayu like screaming all the time about like the work? Like you wouldn't have a, we wouldn't have any connection of relationship that would feel, it would feel more artificial than authentic. So to put it again, sort of quickly here, we built this platform called Latch to deal with one simple thing. How do you get everyone in your organization on the same page without scheduling more meetings? And it's been really, really amazing to see. We've, again, been doing the old school professional service thing, just like all the law firms listening to this. But imagine if you could help your people not have to attend more meetings. Imagine if they felt like they had a voice and vote every single week. Imagine if you, Jason, as like the executive director, the CEO, the managing director of your business, you had a digital podium. Like how many nights do you go to bed thinking like there's a running list of endless things that you see could be better or different in the firm? 
a lot of times. So imagine if you had a place to put it. And then, you know, imagine, I know I'm doing a lot of imagining here. You had a place that when people heard that message, that video, that story that resonated with them, that it said, hey, what are you going to go do about it? No spectating. We need people all in the field. We're all in this thing together. So what this does is it sends out a pulse, sends out a story, prompts a little bit of action. And then what we have, which is kind of cool way before ChatGPT became cool, is some sentiment analysis and some natural language processing that gives the executive team a heat map of who needs a hug, who needs a lesson, who's engaged, who's not engaged. And it helps people asynchronously, kind of a fancy word that just says without scheduling more meetings. It's like, if we're going to let people work from anywhere, we should start thinking about not nine to five. And that's really what Latch has been up to. And so it's been really, really neat to see. I'll give you one last little quick bit about it. We've been working with um, a big financial firm um, that uh, is up in Boston. Um, everyone knows uh, of this organization. You've, if I said the name, you would know it instantly. Um, might have something to do with a big signature on the Constitution. So in any event, I'm allowed to say them, but I just in the interest of being funny for today. So we would generally work with the executives if they wanted to turn the organization more to the right or more to the left. We've been doing this for six or seven years with them. And to get 2,000 people on the same page takes about a year. It just does. To get them to go from knowing it to owning it to driving it. Well, we tried something different. We tried Latch back in 2000. 21, 22, I forget what year it is. And instead of taking a year, it took about 100 days. And we have the data to track it. And so now when we think about where we are, folks, the notion of being radically adaptable that I can't tell you with certainty because all we're dealing with is uncertainty, right? And all this change that keeps happening, you know, to have your whole organization on a weekly loop of seeing something as the executive, saying something to your team and inviting them to do something, that's the play for Latch. So as we wrap up today's special episode, since it's trial or review, I always ask this and it's open-ended, what's your view as an authority on engagement of teams? Something maybe that you haven't already talked about or a summation, whatever you want to say. Well, I would say, let's do a quick little recap. If you know you are looking for a one-size-fits-all, um, you are going to continue to chase your tail. If you're able to unblock the legacy of these people work for you and you're treating them like children, I would offer and extend the invitation to start thinking them like adults. And as we all are trying to build healthy and high-performing environments so we create more shareholder value, we create more enterprise value, we have to keep asking ourselves the question of not what is good for me, but what is good for them. And to shut up and listen. And then decide, sift and sort and figure out how do we get our organization on the same page in any sense without doing the same thing over and over again, which is what we've all been doing, which is over-scheduling Zoom meetings. People who are listening to this, you didn't chime into a 3 p.m. webinar with Jason and I, we gave you the ability to listen to this asynchronously. So the question is how do you unlock that dynamic in your business? Yo, if uh, one of our listeners wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? You bet. Um, if you go to my second book was titled Shift the Work. So go to shiftthework.com. You can check out our team, check out our case studies. 
we write um, pretty frequently, weekly, if you will, about things that we're seeing, about things that we've said, and quite frankly, things that we've messed up and things that I think would be really interesting for people to see in terms of some data, some practices, and some really cool stories of how organizations are doing it. You can check that out on our blog. We'll put links to all of that in the show notes for today. Thanks, Joe, for joining me, and we'll see everyone on the next episode of Trial Review. Review.